Female Pilot Club podcast. If you don't know us, we're a plucky band of lumpy jumpers helping female written sitcom scripts take off and fly against the almost insurmountable odds presented by the TV commissioning system. And if you do know us, we were nowhere near that hotel room, right? And that CCTV is very grainy, in my opinion. What are you on about? We've done a lot of these now, Emily. It's like trying new things, trying new things. I'm Wing Commander Kay Storham. Co piloting today is actor and proud mum Emily Chase. So, the scaly brat. Hitting all the development targets, is he? Large poos? Of course he is, and I wasn't implying anything else, Emily. We wouldn't expect anything different, no matter what other people are saying. So let's move on quick, so we can introduce our brilliant guest, Zara Janjua. Hello. Hello. It's lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you in real life. I, well, I, yeah, I it's know. It's only ever been through a screen, hasn't it? We've had an online relationship hitherto. For a long we? time. I mean, that makes it sound very exciting. It's a dating app. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're completely different in real life because you're about like three inches tall on screen and you're like a full-size human being. <laughs> it's that Father Ted, little big, little big. Shoop, 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 Zara is a successful multi-hyphen TV professional. She is a journalist, presenter, producer, director, filmmaker, writer, comedian, actor and course facilitator and event host. She won a runner-up prize for the David Nobbs Comedy Writing Award in 2021. She was shortlisted for the Funny Women Comedy Writing Award and was a finalist in the comedy short category in 2021. And if that wasn't enough, Zara recently won a spot in the BBC Children's Writers Room and was part of the Female Pilot Club Mentorship Scheme in 2021. I could go on, but I'd be here forever as her talents are endless and it would be much more interesting to speak to Zara herself. Zara, I'm exhausted just listening to all that. (laughs) How the hell do you do it? You guys are great for PR. I'll just play that out forevermore. My God. And I've got to say, follow you on LinkedIn and you're up Kilimanjaro. Oh, yeah. Is there anything you don't do? (laughs) Anything. I'm trying to live a full life as much as I can. You're living a lot of people's full lives and they want it back. (laughs) I love that you've mentioned LinkedIn because I feel like that is the platform I am strong. My LinkedIn game is strong. It is strong. Yeah. And every day I'm like, bloody hell, what's she doing now? I feel uh, a lot more excited about LinkedIn notifications than I do about Tinder ones. So I think that says a lot. Certainly does. So, <laughs> Zara, let's finish up our naffy chow and head for the greenhouse. Chin, chin, pip, pip. Last one in the cockpit is a jelly top. So we at Female Pilot Club know all about your script, AI Mum. But people on the home front, channel surfing looking for lady jokes, don't. So can you do for them what we call a parachute pitch of your show? So the scenario is the plane is going up in flames. There's only one parachute, which you're wearing. As you leave the plane, the commissioning editor of BBC Scotland jumps out and grabs onto your legs. Obviously, this is a BBC Scotland commissioner, so he or she will be eating a scotch pie and trying to hold down his or her <laughs> kilt. <laughs> I can't believe I wrote this. So you'll have to hurry if you're going to pitch your show before he or she crashes to the ground. 
I mean, Kay, have you ever been to Scotland? We don't just eat pies and wear kilts. Of course I'm sorry, I'm wasting time, aren't I? Um, it's a mum, AI mum or e mum. So you can't live with her and can't live without her. That's the premise of it. So PhD student Safia Khan is grieving the loss of her mother, the death of her mum, uh, who was an eccentric, racy, uh, jovial Pakistani maw until she brought her back to life. So she found a way to bring her back to life. She loved her mum. Uh, she also really relied on her and it was verging in codependence. And and she couldn't tap into her mum's wisdom anymore. So she decided to bring an AI version of her mum back to life. And she now appears as a hologram telling her what to do. So it's that kind of, uh, yeah, can't live with her, can't live without her. But also, you know, it's actually a comedy about love and relationships and the things that you need versus the things that you actually need. And he's landed on his sporran. <laughs> <laughs> so face first or something else first. Oh, God. Anyway. Uh, we would definitely commission that. And in fact, we did when you took part in our mentorship scheme during the pandemic. Can you tell us what you got from that and if it's made any lasting impressions? So I got so much from it. I was teamed up with Amy Schindler and her and I were having meetings every few weeks and we were working on the script, which was, you know, it just changed shape. It changed shape because of her and because of her input. And I was, I honestly felt like I had been connected with the perfect person for this script. She was just, um, she made me think about things in it in a very, very different way to how I had approached them and actually made me think a much deeper about the emotional stuff that was really going on. And that's, I think, what's made the biggest impact was learning that for comedy, you know, I'm, I was brought up on a lot of kind of slapstick and a lot of American comedy. And actually, you know, a lot of the time when I work, I just think of like, what's funny? It's how my brain works. It's how my brain is, wi- is wired. And that's where kind of all the magic happens. And I kind of run wild and come up with all this crazy stuff and then have to, you know, pull it back and say, yeah, there's some good stuff here, but actually let's get to the emotion of it. And so now it's kind of following that emotional journey and not just having, you know, comedy moments there for the sake of having comedy moments but helping them to really come from the emotion and the character and what they're going through and what they're feeling so that was and that's been invaluable I've I've taken that into every project really I've worked on since wow so that obviously gave massive changes to the script yeah for sure and I think that's also something that's really nice is that when you're quite new into screenwriting it's you you do learn that it's a collaborative process and what that really means and it becomes ours it doesn't you know it it, it's no longer something that that just belongs to me it feels like it belongs to so many different people who've given their opinions and their their input and their insights so um I I feel like she left her mark on it and in in a really great way and and I learned how to take feedback I learned how to interpret notes and that was part of the process so it doesn't feel so personal um as it did the first time I got notes and thought oh my gosh what am I doing I should never do this why was I even thinking I could write Wow. I mean, it sounds like you had like the almost perfect textbook mentorship experience. Yeah. I'm incredibly impressed. I mean, Amy Schindler is wonderful. She's incredible. She's fantastic. She's a fantastic writer. She's a really lovely person, really empathetic, really knows her stuff. So, I mean, that sounded like it was a really like a little relationship made in heaven for you. It was something I really looked forward to as well. Yeah, I mean, I remember really I was nice. on holiday actually with my mom and my niece and um, we had a, a meeting scheduled and she sort of said, we can, we can, you know, do this later or we can do this another day. And I was like, no way. This is a really, it's a really nice kind of anchor point for me. And it's, it was something that, you know, was fun. I, I it, it wasn't work. It was, you know, having that kind of talent to tap into when you're working on a project and developing it. Um, it was absolutely joyful. It was great to hear her, her feedback 
and especially when we had made changes just to hear okay how, how is she feeling now about it and has that worked and have I addressed that note cor- correctly so it was fun and that was the most important thing. So we really loved your script AI mom we've got to say the leading characters mom is fantastic and she gets transformed into an all-powerful AI monster doesn't she which is hilarious I absolutely loved it and it's very funny um, and I think that many people might relate to it because it's like it's your fantasy monster mum isn't it especially if you've got a mum who's a bit overbearing or you're a bit too close to um, so where did that idea come from? Honestly I am very scared of losing my mum I um I have such a close relationship with her and she's my absolute best friend. She I speak to her for an hour every single day and I cannot imagine my life without her. And I kind of began feeling like oh my gosh, this is something that you know I will have to deal with and cope with at some point in my life and um a very good friend of mine lost her mum and uh, it was and it was very quick. And I think you know from that point it really I can see how it affected her. She had a very similar relationship. Oh, it gets so emotional when I talk about this. But it was a really, she had, she has a very close relationship with her mum too. And I started thinking, you know, I mean, it's like all ideas. Comedy is my coping mechanism for everything. And I use it at the most inappropriate times. And, and it just helps me deal with it. So it started with that question of how on earth would I cope if I lost my my mum? And out of that, <laughs> I don't know why, you know, the, we, I had been doing a, a a conference um it called cognition x and it's where i mean it was we've been tapping into kind of ai minds around the world for this global conference i mean john kerry was speaking at it and all these incredible people who, who are around the world um had some opinion on 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 ai or some background in ai and it just it happens at the same time and you know it was just this kind of lovely moment where you know I started thinking about it it was just you know serendipitous almost that that came about and I did wonder how I would cope if I did have you know if I was able to to bring my mum back and you know how would that relationship play out and you know ultimately it is to the detriment of your life you think you know you're struggling to move on when when someone dies because you're processing that grief but ultimately by bringing someone back a different version you're still not moving on and you're still not processing processing that grief but I mean it is a comedy <laughs> I know it doesn't sound it but it is absolutely oh, it a comedy it definitely is <laughs> and there's there's lots of comedy moments in it like for instance you know I think uh, she, she realizes that, that like we've all thought about this with our parents wouldn't it be great to take them back to the parent factory and tweak a few things make a few sort of tweakments and so you know she hates that her mom's into Bangra uh, music so decides that her mom instead is now going to be into old school hip-hop and stuff and so you know she just makes all these technical tweakments to her along the way which you know is very funny ah we'd all have to do that just a few it's just like baby a few, Botox a few tweets <laughs> so for series two of the female pilot club podcast we have a sponsor it's blue cat screenplay competition who for over 25 years have been discovering and developing storytellers with their annual screenplay competition it was founded by a writer who has a passion for discovering new talent. Just like us at Female Pilot Club. Indeed. Now, Blue Cat has always hosted a blind competition. So everyone's in blindfolds. No, that will be ridiculous, Emily. What it means is that no demographic data is shared, which ensures that winners are chosen based solely on their scripts and nothing else. Okay, that seems fair. So what kind of scripts do they want? Well, they want feature films, they want TV pilots, and they want shorts. 
And the great thing is that readers ensure each submission receives constructive feedback. So you definitely know that your script's been read and you can improve your script after the competition. So what do you get if you win it? Well, you get cash, first and foremost, but also winners and finalists have been signed by talent agencies like UTA, CAA and WME, and they've sold their work to major studios. So if you're keen to hear more, head to bluecatscreenplay.com to learn about their upcoming competition. Ship, ship, ship it the script is quite different from most UK TV comedies in that it's visually very imaginative and non-linear. Um, jump cutting to other locations and genie fantasies and virtual reality worlds. What were your inspirations behind the script? There's been so many of them. I, I mean, I grew up on cartoons and I loved with cartoons that you can do that quite quickly and, you know, quite easily. And, you know, the, I also love this sort of heightened reality and, um, you know, just a, a real sense of another world. Mm-hmm. I love that surprising element that often comes with American sitcoms, like the writing of Tina Fey. Um, I grew up on short stories and I grew up on, you know, Tales of the Unexpected. I love Charlie Brooker. I love Inside Number Nine and the, has this kind of dark, dark humour to yeah. it but and there were dark elements to it but it was still you know I would say it was it was very heightened comedy it, I wrote my first screenplay when I moved to to London and I had never even read a screenplay before and I do think there's a real strength in not having a clue what you're doing for most of the time because often we put barriers in our place and we say I'll need to learn this or I need to go and do a course or actually you know just doing it you find your own way of doing doing it and and I always kind of loved just going on a journey when I was writing what it means is that once you've done that initial draft you kind of go back and have to untangle it and sort of really think about the structure and but you have these really strong lovely comedy moments I was going to ask about your writing process so in terms of that there's not necessarily a fixed process then for you is there no, no, I, I kind of have to, I'm really excitable at the start of something when I get an idea. And if I get sort of six months to do something, I will still spend the same amount of time on it, which will be probably a week at the start and a week <laughs> at the end. And there'll be two really <laughs> frantic weeks. The homework model. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I think you just kind of have to follow that initial spark and that gut. You have to kind of, I, think, I feel like it's when you feel compelled to write something, you have to kind of sit and just let, let it out. And it's always very cathartic and it feels like it's, it's really good and that's where AI mom absolutely came from was just how on earth would I would I cope with it and I thought by trying to create something fun and something funny around it that it would you know add a bit of levity to what is otherwise quite a grim situation that I still can't even bear to think about to be honest without crying. I mean it was a really really fun script and in the end we couldn't read it because we couldn't give it a reading should I say because well a it was the pandemic um, and b it was it's so visual that somehow a reading I don't think could have done it justice. But um, where is it going now? Have you got anyone? Have you got any takers? Is it getting made in any form at all? Because I'd love to see it because I just know visually it, it would just come off the page oh, so thank well. You. Uh, so yes, it's it's there's some exciting stuff happening with it, which I'm really keen to tell you about. And I'm not sure how much I can say, Ooh, but it's exciting. quite recent um, that it's uh, it's actually come into, it's taken a different shape. And so uh, when it was initially pitched, it was a podcast pilot. And um, I think we've had to kind of, you know, when you're going through commissioning phases, it's very much, you know, where's the budgets and what, where are we aligned on that? And how can we reset this so that we have a certain number of characters? And so we have a new script, um, which is very much a similar story, but um, 
it's uh, you know Emum, which is now the the new the new inception of it. Right. And uh, Emum is the uh, instance where Safia's mum is already dead to begin with. It's like the Marley brothers; <laughs> <laughs> they were already dead from the start. So um, her uh, she brings her mum back, and it's really more about her emotional um, journey and. Um, so I've I've enjoyed writing this and kind of keeping the storyline a lot more simplified. There's not as much necessarily going on as there was in the first uh, the first write of it, but it's um, it. I hope you're going to see it really really soon, and I am waiting for a call any day now. So I will let you know. Um, Damn! If only you'd had that call yesterday. I know. You could I could say something, but it's. I will say that I'm working with an incredible producer who has. Um, you know, I think it makes such a difference when you are aligned with someone that just kind of really gets you and champions you and gets behind you and makes suggestions but sort of um really ultimately wants you to lead um i i now feel that it's um it's it, it belongs to so many people and in so many ways where so many people are invested in it and and so many people have put their time into it that you know it's i really want it to be made now not just for me but for everyone who's who's had some emotional investment or time investment in it so far Totally. Well, we're rooting for it. And, you know, there is some competition on really now, isn't there, to get the first female pilot club chosen and developed script. 100%. On there somewhere. Is there a prize? I'm, I'm going to say yes, but literally we haven't thought of that. But I'm going to have to say yes. <laughs> we can't reveal that. We can't, we can't reveal it. That's what I should have said. Yeah. We can't reveal it. Just like you can't reveal where it is. Yeah. We can't reveal where we are at the prize. But, you know, there's a lot of those scripts that are edging up. So. The race, the, yeah, the race yeah. is on. The race oh, is on. The race is on. Listen, it's all about the sisterhood. Whoever makes it, makes it. And I'm delighted How for them. How right you are. How right you are. But I'm so interested to hear that the script is like, um, I'm going to say like uh, pared down a bit from what you say. I made it a little bit simpler because although I loved all those kind of mad leaps that you had, it did make it quite, it's quite dense, isn't it? And, and it would have been quite difficult to to film, I think. Um, but it did have in that form, and it probably still has some incredible comic juxtapositions, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, you know, like the avatars suddenly, you know, when they had to go into the VR world and talk as their, as their avatars. That was hilarious for me. And like the evil Schmidt pausing in his evil schemes to add something to his diversity and inclusion strategy, <laughs> which really made me laugh. And I thought there's someone who's worked in diversity and in- inclusion there. Yeah, you're not wrong. I actually, uh, oddly, I'm on the Ethnicity Advisory Council for NatWest um, and I got into working in ED and I a while ago, but that was more, I think that's an observation from just working in offices and things these days or even Mm -hmm. just human nature and very interestingly and I'm so name dropping at the moment but I was interviewing Mohsin Hamid he wrote The Reluctant Fundamentalist and we were talking a lot about identity and he threw in some really interesting observations and I think that we are like this we're we're so complex as human beings you know we like to think that we're just one thing or we can just be one thing and you're either good or you're bad and we kind of think in a very binary way about everything you know Mm -hmm. something's right or something's wrong something's good something's bad and you know it's just not the way the world works you can have you know an evil mastermind who is of course really aligned with his DTNI strategy. I, I was glad to see it. I think you know, it's getting out there, yeah. the easy strategy. It's getting out there even to evil geniuses. It's amazing. Uh, well, it's it's contrast. And I think I've seen a lot of contrast in my own life and, and contradiction. And, you know, I was split between my mother. Mother's Glaswegian. She's a little red hair Glaswegian and my dad's from Pakistan and you know the cultures were so distinctively different growing up and I felt very torn between them that actually um you know I notice it a lot in life and I'm kind of drawn to that contrast and you know I I just think that 
I love writing it because it still seems to surprise people, even though we do it every day in every way. And we're such hypocrites all the time and it's perfectly normal. But, you know, for some reason, um, you know, we also love to criticise people for it. And it's very easy to criticise people for it. Well, that kind of answers my question, because I was going to say, obviously, you enjoy big comic jokes, which is where do they come from? So you've, you've just told me that really it's come right from the very heart of your family really that you saw those contrasts and and you found them interesting and intriguing and rich which they really are they're just they're just in so many ways they're they're very different and I've I felt very different growing up um my mum was from the east end of Glasgow and um when we were when I was even at school I just felt like I never fitted in I just didn't fit in anywhere and actually that's kind of carried through into my my adulthood um but I I've kind of embraced it now and actually you do realize when you get older that it's quite nice to be different you know you don't you you really desperately try to fit in when you're a child but that's kind of what you want as you get older and um you know you you find people that align with how you think and you kind of come into to that their arena or they come into yours from time to time but I still really struggle with you know where do I belong and what's the meaning of life and I think that ultimately is what drives me to to write is looking for like the answers to that and to who I am um which I'm sure is probably the case for a lot of writers I think it's a classic comedy writer position, isn't it? Like out, outsider, slightly, slightly bitter outsider quite often or, or slightly, you know, discombobulated outsider because it gives you that kind of uh, sideways look on the world that you can then make fun of, doesn't it, really? Yeah, and any stories with, you know, about someone struggling to fit in or struggling with their identity or anything is always going to be relatable, you know, yeah. to a lot of people. Totally. I mean, we all think that we don't fit in. Like there's very, I think it's probably very rare for for someone to say, I've felt perfectly comfortable in who I am my entire life and Mm. felt like I belong all the time. I'm very comfortable in my own own skin. I think it's just what we do is distill our own experiences and kind of find ways to to express that or explain it. Um, But I will always be really interested in identity. And, you know, I think in the original version of of AI Mum, the kind of classic kind of parody at the end was she was faced with the fact that the the AI version of her mum was so overprotective and so overbearing that she actually tries to kill her real mum I know plot twist sorry everyone spoiler alert Um, but it's uh, and it's it's that kind of you know even that difference in identity and kind of um, how you how how do you come to terms with which one do you love more the AI version or like we all have different versions of ourselves and Mm. and we present them at different times in different ways and um, I think there's definitely definitely a part of kind of explaining that within the script as well in our industry as well like you were talking about feeling more comfortable being different as you grew up and got older it's it's quite a positive thing to stand out isn't it because you're memorable it makes you different and finding that way of of standing out does make you um yeah it does make you a lot more memorable I, I even used to hate my name because I would think you know, it's. I'd have to explain it to people, and um, I'd have to spell it for them, and you know, it was just. I, I really hated that. I wished I was just, you know, Gemma Smith. I wanted just to have a, a standard name. And now I remember when I was working in, I work in media as well, and as a journalist, which you mentioned. But there, one of a, an ed, the editors saw my name and said, "God, it looks really good written down. It really stands out." And I thought, "Wow, that's really nice. I really appreciate that." And you know, it's it is nice to stand out. Why why would you want to be the same as everyone else? And Gemma Smith is listening to this right now, thinking, oh, "I wish I was Sarah Jandra." <laughs> 
So you touched briefly earlier, or I did in your endless biog, about the other things that you do um, aside from script writing. So there's some things that you do within comedy, other things aside from writing, but also outside of comedy. Very confusing, isn't it? A little. Could uh, you well, tell us a bit more about them? Absolutely. So actually, I've been doing a, a life audit recently and kind of looking <laughs> at, I know, well, I, did you ever read Matthew McConaughey's Green Lights book? And he kind of went out to the desert and tried to like, it tried to establish why he was where he was in his life and what had led to his success. And he identified these green light moments. So the moments everything go really well and then red light moments where everything doesn't. And you think that's a bad thing, but actually those were the moments that you had most growth. And I realized that sort of 60 to 80% of my income at the moment is from comedy in some form. But I do think that probably it, it impacts everything I do. I think that having, um, bringing levity into your work in any capacity makes you more employable. It makes you better in teams. It you makes people around you more productive. I think I probably earn more as a, as a result of, of being quite a humorous person or a funny person from time to time. Yeah, a comedy, I, I'm obviously, you know, writing uh, a comedy and, and you know, that's something I really want to continue and to grow. I'm writing an episode of a new CBBC show just now, which is great. Um, and I've written a couple of other episodes for, for other um, programmes which are coming out uh, next year. And so the, the comedy writing is going really well. Um, I also this year had my first, I, I love growing a new strand as a multi-hyphen. I feel like it's my mission every year is to be like, what new job can I do this year? And, and this year it was a, as a creative. So I was brought into, and it's so weird how things come about, but I, the New York Times brought me in to report at COP26 last year. And somebody was looking for a creative to come and work on a new film. And it's by a platform called Waterbear. And Waterbear, sort of like the Netflix of nature. Um, it was founded by my octopus teacher producer. And they sort of wanted to bring in someone to write this comedy film that they wanted to do. But it was about sustainability. And it was just an, a really odd mix. They're based out in Amsterdam. And so I had got this email from them. And they said, we're looking to kind of bring in a creative to work on the, the overall creative of this, this new film you know can we have a chat and that led to me being the creative on that project and I've never been a creative before and I feel like it's like the most flouncy like it's the best title I've ever had I'm not creative. even sure what what it means you what does it mean expand. in the context of a film are yeah. you are you writing like a, a fiction script or is it a documentary or uh, it's unscripted um, oh, right. But so it's sort of, a, yeah, it's like a documentary, I guess, but it's more, you know, we had, oh, it's so hard to explain what it is without actually saying, but there are real format points within it. So, oh, right. you know, they want to visit um, certain places that um, work with uh, within the circular economy and I have to come up with really fun games and silly games for the pre presenter to try and guess what where we're going. So it was beyond fun trying to do that and, and coming up with the ideas for it all. But it's just basically being like an ideas bot you know That's why brilliant. don't we do this and making that happen so that was a lot of fun but um I mean I'm doing everything from news to you know daytime to comedy to cooking to travel to you know and it's it, it's um I, I love that mix because we've asked other people oh what you know where would you see yourselves in the future and where would you want to be in your career but yours is more how many more careers can I find rather than where can I reach in one well I felt like I've only sort of just distilled what it is that actually drives me and what it is that I really really want and it's experiences I really really love the fact that I can do something new I can visit a new country I can achieve a new milestone I can do something that I didn't think was possible because you know I think in 
in in life sometimes we're challenged when when things happen to us that you know can really take away our confidence or you know our belief in our, our abilities and the more I found that I achieve a goal that I have the more belief I have in myself that actually I could do anything I want to do and that's a, it's a really nice feeling it's always going to be experiences and new experiences can be anything like I I mean I, I recently was I've just come back from Norway I was presenting a travel series out there I've never been to Norway I've never been on a cruise ship and I was like this is so exciting. I would say when I was out there they did find out that I did all this other stuff and they're going to bring me back to do you know a bit of a comedy crash course and things with the the teams as well which I think is you know amazing. It's a really positive approach actually Zara because when I think about a lot of the writers that we speak to and a lot of the writers that we know and because they're very very focused on one thing and obviously in writing you get a lot of rejection then that can actually be really kind of you know, soul destroying and bad for your psyche. But it sounds like you've really got a brilliant approach, which is you're doing so much else that the writing, when it does come good, feels like, you know, it's a bit of a the icing on the cake in a way, because you're not waiting around for it. You're doing loads of other stuff, which you're also finding really, really nourishing and, and worthwhile. So oh gosh, absolutely. It's a great approach, really, isn't it? I think. I well, was, yeah, because also if the, you know, if you get the rejection that everyone is so used to getting in our industry for you, it's just, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll go and do this now, you know, and you won't dwell on it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it helps to build up resilience if yeah, you're not so focused yeah. or so invested. But I yeah. also have really, really changed the way that I think about opportunities. You know, so often we go into something with a heart, our heart set on, we're going for a job, we want that job. If we don't get it, we failed. I want to pitch this. If I get this in, then great. And if I don't, I've failed. You know, it, we, the, it's that binary thing. We think, you know, something's good or something's bad. And I loved when, I don't know if you watched the Friends reunion last year. The story that came out about Ross Schw- uh, David Schwimmer, the the, the ca- character Ross, how they created that role for him, and he had been along to an, an interview or an audition years and years before that show was created, and they didn't give him the role, and he would have left that thinking I failed, and he didn't know that he made such a great impression on them, but he just wasn't right for that one that they he stayed in their minds, and actually when they were creating Friends, that role was created for him. And that was the role of a lifetime for him. So I just think you can't discount, you know, what's coming up further down the line. I'm not a big believer in fate. I just think that sometimes you need to put positive energy into things and not feel like it's not worked just because you maybe haven't got the outcome that you want. It probably helps if you're like super multi-talented, like you clearly are. Uh, yeah. To be fair. Well, it takes one to know one, clearly. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I know that one of the things you're doing at the moment is you're, you're in a writer's room or you've been in a writer's room, haven't you, for a, a, a kid's show? Yes. Yep. I think a lot of the people who listen to this podcast would love to be doing that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? And also, how was it as a as a woman? Probably was thinking about it quite an even split, was it? But often writers' rooms aren't. So mm-hmm. how did you get on being a woman in a writers' room? I mean, I've been uh, in a few writers' rooms now that I've been very fortunate to see quite a, you know, a mix. It's changing, isn't it? And it's been incredible in fact there was one in particular I was in where you know I just I took a moment because I hadn't realized just the diversity that was going to be in the room you know there was a a range a complete mix of people and I've learned so much from them in that process 
you know, this is the thing in ED&I is that we we do learn that companies are at least 36% more successful, you know, in their bottom line if they have a more diverse uh, mix within within their employees. And, you know, we all came at it from a different approach. We all had different life experiences we brought into the characters. We all had different ideas. Some of them were absolutely bonkers. Some of them were, you know, incredibly funny. Some of them were really, you know, they they were just completely embedded in something that they had experienced. I went through this and they shared stuff with me that I I wasn't aware of. I think I'm really grateful that this is the time I'm coming in for to comedy. And I also think that, you know, I'm very grateful to all the women before me who've paved the who've paved the way, who've made it possible for me to actually sit in a right room and look around and think you know I can see myself in other people I can see uh, representation um, across the board and that that's been really lovely so I do think you know I'm quite fortunate in that sense but it's been yeah it's it's a learning experience when you join because you do need to you know really think about how you're contributing as well and and kind of bring yourself to it. I know they say bring your whole self but like just let go enjoy it and have fun with it I think that's especially with a comedy writer's room you really want to just make sure you're having fun because if you're not you know let someone else reel you all in um but just go you know let the ideas flow um it was the most fun I had a week uh, a whole week in a writer's room and it was the most fun I've ever had I mean, that's really good to hear, isn't it? I mean, not that writers' rooms aren't always fun. Whenever I've been in a writers' room, I've always it was really great fun, but it hasn't always been a diverse space. And so it's so great. I mean, we've had Georgia Pritchett, haven't we, on our podcast. I don't know if you heard that one where she talked about like always being in the only woman in the writers' room for 25 years of her career. Um, and I would have had a similar experience, I think. Um, it, so just to know that... You have things that are changing, that it's different and really welcoming, and everyone's seeing the benefits of that. It's just like brilliant news, isn't it? Really. So we were just talking there a bit about diversity. Um, I just wanted to touch on that a bit more in terms of the work that you're doing or have done around equity and diversity training. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, it was. I it came from. I, I was doing a podcast with. Uh, the Royal Bank uh, about women in business and uh, was connected with the CEO Alison Rose and was doing a lot of work with the the teams and they wanted to create this uh, council, this ethnicity advisory council to bring in external members to kind of help hold the bank to account for, you know, how their promises to stakeholders. And um, I honestly hadn't a clue what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you know, great opportunity. And, uh, you know, they say that you should usually aim to be the dumbest person in the room, because if you're the dumbest person in the room, then you're always learning something. And that's like such a great mission to have, I think, in life. But I definitely felt like the dumbest person in the room (laughs) on the first day. Um, And it was just, you know, I also was kind of doing a bit of um, uh, non-exec training at the time to try and kind of establish how I was going to make some sort of useful or meaningful impact in these meetings and that I wasn't just coming along and looking at everyone doe-eyed and and sort of thinking wow they're amazing and I love what they're saying and actually being able to contribute something myself (laughs) and I did feel like I was just agreeing and nodding thinking wow that's amazing um and so um it started really by you know learning from my peers and learning from from the the teams there but it was 
It's something that's affected me a lot in my life and especially working in television where, you know, there are um, twice as many people, it's quite elitist, I think, you know, there's twice as many people working um, in television who come from uh, privately educated backgrounds. And I, when I moved to London, I was, you know, producing a number of daytime shows on ITV and I I could see that, you know, there was a real lack of diversity in, in newsrooms and across the board. And, you know, it's, it's so damaging when you cannot see somebody who looks like you, when you don't see someone who sounds or hear someone that sounds like you. Um, it's There's so much negativity in it for anyone who's looking at breaking into an industry or anyone who wants to progress. And I think, you know, my being, I was brought up Muslim and my dad's Pakistani. And I think probably people say I look a bit more Spanish, you know, which I get away with sometimes. Um, but it's, I'm not. I I came from a very different culture and that kind of not fitting in is something I've dealt with quite a lot in life and it it bred to a lot of imposter syndrome which I did not know about and did not know what on earth imposter syndrome was but I started recognizing that you know it's that kind of overachieving (laughs) you know it's a sign of imposter syndrome having feeling like I'm not good enough and I have to keep on doing lots and lots of things so that people can see how impressive I am and that I'm not going to stand out and people are not going to think oh my god what are you doing here get the hell out of the room you know you don't belong and um, I started recognizing it and really kind of digging into what that was and there's just so much of that ingrained within ED&I and thank goodness we're finally investing in it a lot of companies now have appointed someone head of ED&I. I think they're really lacking still insufficient funding for it. Quite often people who are running ED&I within large corporations, they are also still doing a day job. You know, they're, they're also still doing whatever other job they're, they're doing within or working in another capacity. So um, there's not the same investment being made as there should um, you know, within FTSE 100 companies or even, the, you know, the top four, we really want to see some investment being being made. Um, so I find it fascinating when I'm in this room, we're really looking at how is this affecting people? Because I know how it's affected me. And now I'm, I'm in a room with people who are actually working with these companies. So Diversio, for example, who actually work with companies to show them, you know, how they can uh, gather data um, that they need about their workforce. And it's just such a complex issue because, you know, we, we every different workplace has a different mix of internal and external stakeholders. So, you know, it's very difficult to say one size fits all when it comes to ED&I. But I just get really passionate when I talk about it because I feel like it's something that you need to figure out for yourself. And I've I've been figuring out for myself, even with what I do when I'm crewing up for shoots. I noticed I got I had a BBC commission about a year and a half ago and I had to do it really really quickly and I just went through my phone book and went there's my DOP there's my soundy that's you know I made my list and then I looked at my list and I went they're all white men something is really broken and that's even for me who's very switched in and very connected and would naturally gravitate towards other people from diverse backgrounds and so you know that set me on a mission then to how do I change that network of people how do I sort of create opportunities for people who want to break into the industry and it is very difficult to get into television and to get into film and obviously there's the stat with women you know 16% of UK uh, comedy is written by women so you know that's that's terrible isn't it yep sadly I don't even think it's 16% is it I, I think it depends what stats you look at but I think the Writers Guild research that came out in 2018 um, had 11% of women uh, writing sitcom 
and I think even less for entertainment shows, might even be 9%. 16%, I think, is a figure that has been bandied about as like, that's where it's got to since then. Is that, is, is that a recent figure that you've read? Or if you is it the Writers Guild figures that you're? Thinking I think it of? probably is the Writers Guild one. I've probably misquoted yeah, them. I, I think it's. I think it's two years. I think sixteen percent um, refers more to drama. Drama goes from about sixteen to twenty-seven percent. I think, but I mean, there isn't fifty percent anywhere for sure. I mean, ultimately, whether it's eleven or whether it's sixteen, it's not it's, enough. It's, still cr- no. it's wild, though, oh, isn't it? Of course, terrible. and to consider the fact that we we do have the stats about how you know that bottom line for for businesses is better, and you know what it's like when you're working with a, a group of people, especially in a creative capacity, mm. who all just bring something different to the table. You want to you you see the benefits of it. Yes, yeah. it's, it's so much better for productivity, for ideas, for you know e- even just creating a better culture, a work mm. culture. Mm. It, it can be great. So yeah, I think the stats are good in the sense that it's great that we finally got some. I think because for years, because I I do a bit of stuff in that kind of well, like we all do, like equalities uh, and diverse equality and diversity stuff or equity and diversity. Um, for years, people kept telling us that it was getting better women that it wasn't a problem anymore quite seriously you know quite seriously saying it's fine for women now it's all great and you couldn't really argue because people would say well look there's Phoebe Waller-Bridge look there's you know there's these individuals and it was only when those stats came out which showed that those figures had gone on at that kind of level over 10 years unchanged that people really couldn't they didn't everyone had to shut up a bit because they could see it really was properly bad but then, you know, that's why data is so, so important so within that important, sector. Yeah. And, you know, we all have our own experiences that we come into and offer that qualitative data, which is really, really important. You know, that lived experience. How do you feel? What, you know, what are you experiencing? But ultimately, people are not going to do things unless you have, you know, uh, companies are not going to make investments unless you have that that data and that backing. And um, also, you want to know it because when you're in an argument with some idiot mm. in a pub, it's so <laughs> refreshing yeah. to be able to pull out some stats. I'm just saying. Yeah, you've got to have that. It's great. Yeah. Well, you can't argue with the actually, stats. You no, know, you can't. And 16% working class people as well in TV. Science, man. Yeah, it is. So how would you like to see the industry change? How would I like to see it change? Gosh, mm. I mean, I think that it's inevitable it's going to change. Everything seems to change. Um, but what I would like to see that I could pick up my phone and quite easily access, you know, people from a range of backgrounds. Um, and that, you know, the thing is, when, when you're working on different projects, um, you need to, you do need to have that that varied insight, that varied background of people. Because I like to work in a really, you know, linear way. I don't like hierarchy, um, which is probably... So I've been sacked 21 times, um, and I, I, it's fine. Um, but... I realised quite often. Even, even that's impressive. Thank you. Anything you do, unimpressive. <laughs> Speaks about previous. You just like the big numbers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was. Uh, I realised it was a hierarchy. I didn't like that um, hierarchical structure, and I, I, I don't do well with it. And so I don't tend to work that way. And I, I actually see that in television and in film that that's still very much the case. And I think we need to break some of that down a bit because I feel like it's a bit silly that we are still operating in this way where, you know, we've got the runners at the bottom and the directors at the top and the runners not allowed to speak to directors and that kind of stuff still goes on. It can be very toxic, the environment. 
What I think is admirable, though, Zara, is that, you know, you're taking it on yourself. You know, you're 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 not just going like a lot of us do. Oh, my God, they should all fix that problem. You know, you've thought about yourself looking in your address book and you want to make that change, you know, straight away in your own life. And do you think it's up to all of us to to try and change things, not just, you know, campaign for the BBC or the BFI to do something? I mean, I think you can do it on a macro or a micro level and, yeah. and, you know, doing, you know, for instance, it's not that difficult to get in touch with universities and sort of just say, this is what I'm doing, or I've had this commission. I mean, I say this because when you do BBC comedy shorts and the short stuffs, they kind of just give you the commission and you kind of crew up and do it all yourself, which has been really lovely experience to, to do. And that's my background anyway. So I've really enjoyed that. Um, but to, to be able to give people, because what's really hard when you're entering the industry is getting that first credit. Mm-hmm. Once you have credits and once you have experience and you have contacts, you are you're off. Good to go. Yeah. You're off. So, um, you know, getting in touch with universities and, and sort of saying, you know, this is what's happening. I'm doing this. Do you want to collaborate? Is there anyone you, 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 you would advise me speak to? Or just in general, you know, are there any students that you think might need some additional support or that you want to? And, and I'm happy to connect them. And, you know, sometimes it has been a case that they've just said, well, it, no one's working in comedy. But, you know, we've got this student who comes from Syria and she's done this. And, you know, would you I don't know if you have any advice. Do you want to chat? And sometimes it's just that just sometimes just have a chat with people and just keep a bit of an open door because if you have experience and someone doesn't then you've definitely got something to pass on to them and it's been it's such a nice feeling when you connect I know this is what you guys do is you connect people and you know that you offer them opportunities I think um in terms of doing things for other people I think the mentorship scheme that we did was really one of the most satisfying things that we've done actually yeah I mean it's really hard work I've got to say very hard work but we really saw how much the writers valued it they really really loved it and they really got a lot out of it and interestingly the mentors as well really enjoyed it didn't they and really got a lot out of it so it was it was a bit of an eye-opener for us because we probably wouldn't have done that had the pandemic not happened because we were very focused on yeah we had to kind of rethink what we were doing and try and work out what we could still do in lockdown that's amazing you adapted to it and, and came up with this format because actually it worked perfectly just being able to have zoom meetings with with mentors just really did help uh, as, as great or as good as it would have been if we'd met in person so thank yeah. you well we all got used to it during the pandemic didn't we we almost forgot that you could meet up in person mm-hmm. i liked it better in some ways because you, you see just... me can you hear me yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've got your mic on <laughs> yeah your mic's turned off i've said that so many times <laughs> still do i don't know if this question is really relevant now but we were interested in if you actually have a dream job that you haven't yet managed to conquer um or do you have a goal um within the comedy industry that you're kind of focused on i've always wanted to be a writer and i mean that's why i studied business as an undergrad of course writing writing novels um I have so many ideas for for novels and, you know, I really want to, I feel like that is going to be my thing. Um, I'm writing my first book at the moment. Um, It's actually about the fact I was sacked 21 times and um, it's a sort of business book. Uh, So 21 ways to get sacked and how to take control of your career. Um, So it's how to develop multiple income streams and things and that I'm working from a kind of comedy basis. But I think it's more going to be the fiction stuff that I really want to do and I've not done that yet. And it's slightly terrifying and exciting in equal measure because I, I have a feeling that when I do, that's going to be it for me. And, you know, uh, um, 
I, I, I really find it hard to get the time at the moment to mm-hmm. actually sit and, and dedicate myself to it because I write a weekly column and I have like yeah quite a, a few different projects at the moment you've got about 52 jobs <laughs> I even... thought you were going to say it was going to be a film like 21 dresses it was like <laughs> going to be 21 p45s <laughs> <laughs> that's the film bush 21 p45 there you are. <laughs> there's your title Zara I've done it for you okay you want to you want to do something without copyright <laughs> pronto <laughs> No, I mean, I would honestly, I'd love to be killed in a horror movie. That's also another like really weird ambition of mine. I'd love, I'd love to be a victim in a horror movie. Very, very odd ambition. Yeah, thank Not you. Not one that I've ever can. I kind of, I've never thought of that in my life. No, a really bad one. Though. Specific. No, like death. The, oh, cause of oh death. gosh, the most gruesome one, a really gruesome death, and actually one that would involve you know quite long camera holds on on my face, you know just with the slow death <laughs> if you're listening anyone making a anyone cheap, up for a slow death <laughs> a cheap indiora the cheaper the better here, here's your first victim <laughs> we'll do a phone number later <laughs> well Sarah um as you know the female pilot club is very very exclusive I don't know if very you know exclusive. that it's very exclusive we don't just let anyone in yeah, we actually do. We let everyone we let in. Everyone, everyone, everyone in. We let in. And you are a member of that club. Woo! Very, very honoured. <laughs> so, what we would like to ask from you is, who would you like to nominate to also be a member of the Female Pilot Club? Yeah, so it can be a writer, producer, performer, or stand-up from the history of comedy whose only crime was a lumpy jumper. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone spring to mind? I am going to say someone, but I don't know whether either she's maybe already in or or even if she qualifies, but I sincerely hope she does. Uh, Lynn Parker from Funny Women. She's not already in. No. Oh, she's not. Not oh, yet. Fabulous. So um, very much comedy producer. Obviously, she has offered so many opportunities to just very much like yourselves to women breaking into comedy. And, um, you know, she's been very central to my success as well. I really appreciate how much she has done and how much she continues to do and just how kind of widespread it's been with funny women. Um, Every single year, I love watching the shortlist coming out and I love kind of seeing then where everyone goes. And last year, Lara Rico, the winner of the the stand-up, she, you know, just I saw her at the Fringe this year. I've seen her on television. I've seen just her success skyrocketing. And I think that, you know, she's the woman behind the scenes making all of that happen and you know there's so many people who wouldn't be where they are today without her so um for that reason it's kind of by proxy um yeah she has, has helped so many people get to where they are so she's made a huge impact on comedy through giving other people opportunities great cool and amazing I think that's the first person who hasn't been a writer or a performer that we've had yeah it? yeah that's correct so yes well done Lynn well done Lynn she's Congratulations. in you've even covered a new category in that just stop I'm such a pain in the arse I know <laughs> so here's the siren yeah well that sound means it's time for us to get our shit together and get home for some Netflix and chill whoa whoa whoa, whoa. They, they never said that in the second world war Emily and you definitely know pit rude Emily but never mind because we'll be back soon to take another plucky female pilot up where she can be blown by the TV comedy commissioning system blown away Kay you mean I away. know what I mean Emily goodbye from our guest Sarah Jandua and goodbye from female pilot club goodbye <laughs> why not follow us at female pilot club on twitter and insta 
The script was written by Kay Stonham and the show was produced by Emily Chase and Kay Stonham. It was edited and technically produced by Adam Bromley with music composed by Tim Sutton. If you enjoyed the show, please do like, subscribe, share and review. Until next time, up, up and away. You can always